Exodus chapter 1, the whole chapter should be on the screen as well, but if you have your Bibles with you, that'd be great to, to follow along. Thank you. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with their family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all all that generation died the Israelites were exceeding fruitful, exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then the king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become uh, even more numerous And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them and to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithon and Ramesses as stone cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women, during childbirth on the delivery stool. If you see the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into into the Nile, but let every girl live. Let's pray as David comes up to speak. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that we can read it each day and that we have the freedom in this country to to do that. And we pray, Lord, as we come round your word this evening, help us to to learn more from you. And just pray you'll help David um, explain your word this evening, um, to explain what you have for each one of us. Pray that, Lord, we'll be challenged by your word, challenged in, in the, our thinking, challenged in our, in our hearts. And, Lord Jesus, we pray as we come round your word that we will become more like you, more like you in, our, in the things that we do in our lives as we strive to follow you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.
Thank you very much indeed, Jonathan. It's a joy to be here this evening again as this morning. And lovely to see all these young people here tonight. What a joy to see you here. Some of you know me, some of you don't. And uh, we've had a lovely time with Roy and Judith. I am well fed, as you might notice, and we've had a lovely time of fellowship together today. So I'm very grateful. Uh, I come from Exeter, and uh, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. I'm fortunate in that I can remember almost the time, but I can remember the day. October the 15th, 1957, in a little meeting for young people with a handful of young people in our little chapel, I heard that I had to be born again from John chapter 3. And I felt that I was good enough as I was and I needed no help from Jesus because I had sought to live a good life. My parents were not practicing Christians in that they went to church, but we three children were sent. I'm six years younger than my brother and nine years younger than my sister, so I had to tag along. But that night, Jesus became real to me. Um, 16, and when I was 19, I entered into what we call full-time Christian service. And I've been following and seeking to serve the Lord ever since, at home and overseas. And in recent years, as an itinerant preacher, as Peter Glasgow says, a peripatetic preacher, but some of us are peripatetic preachers. You can tell Peter that next week. I'm quoting him, the great Bible teacher. But it's lovely to be here with you tonight. And I have to be honest, when I received the notice from Margaret to give me the title and the subject for this evening, I was a little bit in awe. Because when I read through Exodus chapter 1, I just wondered what I was going to find there to pass on to you tonight that you don't already know. And what I try and do with a portion of scripture is to read it through and just to see if there is one particular thought that I could emphasize that would be of help to me. And as I read through Exodus chapter 1, the thought came to me, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And this afternoon, a little chorus came into my mind. God is still on the throne, and he will remember his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. And I thought, how true that is for the children of Israel who were down in Egypt. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. And all the time that the children of Israel were in Egypt, God knew every detail of their lives and what was happening to them, present, and what was going to happen to them in the future. So I want us to emphasize the sovereignty of God, that God is faithful 
when God calls us, then he will finish that. And that will take us home to heaven. God puts his hand upon us and leads us and guides us and directs us. And I was thinking of those lovely verses often given, maybe at weddings or at believers' baptismal service. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And I felt that in this chapter, which I've really struggled with, I felt that I could see God at work in a very special way, as we shall see as we go through this portion of Scripture. Exodus chapter 1. Now, you all know that Exodus follows Genesis in as much and the same relation as the New Testament follows the Old Testament. We cannot separate any of the books from the Bible, Old Testament, or New Testament, because each one has bearing on the other. And Genesis tells us of man's fall. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of that tree. They did. And they disobeyed. And the Bible says that sin came into the world and death along with sin. And uh, that fall from grace, as it were, has affected each and every generation of people, every one of us here in the chapel this evening. And Exodus is the thrilling story of God running or rushing to the rescue of mankind. It tells of the redeeming work of a sovereign God. God loves to redeem. And here in a wonderful way we have this word, redemption. Exodus is preeminently the book of redemption in the Old Testament. Go through the Old Testament and you won't find a clearer picture of redemption than in the book of Exodus. And as week after week, and Jonathan, you're on in two weeks' time, you will see the unfolding of God's plan of redemption of his chosen people. It begins in a darkness and a gloom, and yet it ends in glory. It begins by relating how God came down in grace to deliver his enslaved people And ends by declaring how God came down in glory to dwell amongst his redeemed people. It's a wonderful picture of a Christian. Because today, Pentecost Sunday, the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, I am with you. I'm going to leave you, but one is coming who will be within you. And so today, we don't have a Savior, a Redeemer who's far away, but one who lives within 
our hearts. Now the word exodus, which is Greek, means way out. Way out. And God was seeking a way out for his chosen people. And without Genesis, the book of Exodus has no meaning. In older translation, the book of Exodus begins with the word now or and. So it's not the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. It's a continuation of Genesis, which is called Exodus, because we had in the beginning and now we find God moving and moving his people out. Exodus naturally follows on, and it doesn't start with these are. It says and, or it says now. Our assignment tonight, as you know, and Jonathan read it, is chapter 1 and the 22 verses. And it's entitled in my Bible, The Bondage, or The Israelites Oppressed. And uh, this book, as it opens, it's three and a half centuries that have passed since the closing of the report and the record in Genesis. Three and a half centuries have passed. And the book of Genesis is a family history book. And Exodus is a national history book. Genesis talks about individuals. Exodus talks about a nation, a family. We have no record as to the happenings during that time. It's a long time. Much could have happened. But the patriarch Abraham, he died when Jacob, his grandson, was about 15 years old. And Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, had been sold as a slave into Egypt and had risen to great prominence and influence, as we know. And, and the sons of Jacob had gained great favor because of Joseph. And because Joseph lived a, a righteous life, it kind of rubbed off onto his brothers and that often happens, doesn't it, in life. You see a Christian living the life, and deep down you want what that person has. You want to walk with God as that person does. Now, Joseph's brothers, they were beggars really in a sense that they had sold him into slavery. But because of God's hand of blessing upon Joseph they too became blessed. And when they went down into Egypt, there was only 70, as the Bible says right here, only 70. But before they left Egypt, the people had grown into a nation of over 3 million people, men, women, and children. And uh, Numbers 146 says that they had 600,550 men of war. Now that's some multiplication, isn't it? In Genesis 1 and verse 28, God instructed Adam and Eve 
to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And here in verse 7, we have a reference. The same three words are used in reference to the Israelites. Fill the earth. And that's exactly what God had allowed to happen. Those 70 originally became over 3 million. In verse 2, we have their names. And when Joseph died, a new Pharaoh came onto the throne in Egypt. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't know how God had blessed Joseph. The wealth and the great numbers of the children of Israel made the Pharaoh and the inhabitants of Egypt very, very suspicious of the Israelites. In the eyes of the Egyptians, they had become real powerful enemies. They had grown to such an extent that the Egyptians felt that they could be overwhelmed if there was a war. And Pharaoh, wishing to curtail their growth, reduced them to the worst slavery imaginable. This was hard for the people because up until this new Pharaoh, they had kind of lived a a, a free life, do-as-you-please kind of life. But now they were under the cosh in every sense of that word. And this was hard for them. But deep down, in the back of their memories, they must have remembered the promises God had given to Abraham and his descendants. And it made this bondage doubly, doubly difficult to understand. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3 The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That was God's promise to Abraham. And that promise stands even today. And the story told in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy shows that God did not forget the promise that he made to Abraham years before, I will make you into a great nation. And during these days of slave, hard Labor in bondage, they believed that God would fulfill that promise. And God does keep his promises. He's not one who makes and breaks. If I have said, then I will keep. And so we find in verse 1 that Jacob's family arrived in Egypt during the glory days of the Pharaoh. Things were happening in Pharaoh's. What a contrast between the two nations because the Hebrews, the Jews, worshipped one God, one God alone. 
But the Egyptians, they worshipped many gods. And the, the children of Israel, the Hebrews, were wanderers as Abraham wandered until God took him to his final dwelling place. But the Egyptians, they were builders. They wanted to build bigger. They wanted to build better. And Hebrew women were, were kept in the background. But often Egyptian women, they occupied prominent places in society. And so the pharaohs tried to keep the Hebrews, both men and women, under, in bondage. They lived separately, the Hebrews living in Goshen, north of the great Egyptian centers. And, and slavery, that was an ancient practice used by all kinds of different nations. Employ, they employed conquered people. They had overrun them. They were subject to them. And, and no doubt, if you've been to Egypt, you will have seen the great pyramids more than likely they have been built with slave labor. And although the Israelites were not a conquered nation, the people were considered by the Egyptians as uncultured and less intelligent and generally lower in status. And then verse 11, there were levels of, of slavery in Egypt. Some slaves worked long hard hours in mud pits, while others were skilled carpenters, jewelers, craftsmen. Whatever their particular skill, they were kept under the watchful eye of what the Bible calls taskmasters. I looked up that in the dictionary. Taskmaster means one who imposes a burden or oppresses others. A task. Master, They were specialists in making slaves' lives miserable. And we have an illustration of this in chapters 5 and 6. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making the bricks, let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. And notice the word ruthlessly used twice in verses 13 and 14. Ruthlessly. Ruthlessly. So you can just imagine how these taskmasters treated these Israeli people. And then we notice there are names given of two store cities built for Pharaoh in verse 11. And no matter how hard they worked, the Egyptians were intent on wearing them down. But they didn't succeed. They multiplied and grew stronger. And when I read the word multiplied and increased, I thought of the early church. The early church started off with just a handful of people. On this day of Pentecost, about 3,000 people were saved 
and baptized. And it goes on to say that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In chapter 6 it says, And when the number of disciples had greatly increased, and I like the word multiplied rather than increased, there was a tremendous, tremendous persecution. A great persecution rose up against the church. Those who were, they weren't called Christians then, but those who were of the way. And we are introduced to Saul of Tarsus. And he felt that these so-called followers of Jesus were, were in the way. And so he got official letters and he could apprehend those who were found in the way, put them in prison, many of them, men, women, and children. But did that destroy the church? No. The church continued to increase and increase. And over the years, there have been others who have followed in Saul's footsteps trying to destroy the church. And look at the church today. No one can number the number of believers. The names of the believers are right there in heaven. We cannot number them. And God promised to Abraham that his descendants would be as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore, just like it is with the believers of all nations that have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've experienced persecution in your life, maybe misunderstanding, maybe opposition. I remember preaching a little Baptist church on the Dartmoor and uh, we were having communion at the close of the services and I came down to the table and a lady jumped up and she ran out crying. And I thought, David, what have you said? What have you done to upset that lady? And I was quite concerned. And at the end of the service, I went to one of the elders and I said, what did I say? What did I do? Oh, nothing to do with you, David. But that lady is the only Christian in her home, a husband and two daughters. And she's the only believer. And in order to prevent her from coming to church this morning, her husband removed the battery from her car. You see, that's opposition. Mild opposition, but real opposition. Persecution. We need to remember the persecuted church right now. If you're not familiar with Barnabas Fund and Release International and Open Doors, etc., get acquainted with it and see how many of our brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted because they name the name of Jesus. And what happened to these people, the Israelites, when we're burdened or mistreated or stressed out, we may feel deflated and worthless. But Psalm 55 verse 2 says, Cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, the hymn says, All thou who changest not, Abide with me. And although the Israelites were under tremendous persecution by these taskmasters, they never lost hope because of the promise 
of God. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, Carry, bear each other burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And there's something wonderful about the body of Christ, the church, belonging to a local church, experience that caring, bearing one another's burdens. You've got to be careful who you share with. Little word of warning, some Christians are like colanders, they leak. And the minute you say, right, I'm saying this to you in confidence next day, it's all over gone viral. Be careful who you share with. Bear one another's burdens. And in love, in love, sometimes God allows burdens in order to make us stronger. Make us stronger. You plant a little sapling, a little tree in the garden, and uh, you put a tie against it. But then the wind, and that makes that tree, that shrub, put its roots down even deeper. And when the winds of trial and tribulation come, then that will help us to put our roots deeper into the love and care of Jesus. And sometimes God allows burdens to make us stronger in order to develop spiritual qualities as he wants to prepare us for any eventuality. We don't know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. And that's good to know, isn't it? And that's what kept the Israelites going. Sometimes we cannot trace God's hand, but we must then trust his heart which is full of love for each one of his blood-bought children. We've met people in recent days, they say, where is God in my situation? Terminal illness, separation, divorce. Where is God allowing this to happen? We cannot always trace God's hand, but we must trust God's heart. Verses 15 to 17, we have this wonderful statement here. Verses 12 to 14, the hardship imposed upon the Hebrews intensifies, but it doesn't reduce the population of the Hebrews. So, what does Pharaoh do? He resorts to murder. Murder is terrible, isn't it, in any form or fashion. London has become more murderous than New York in recent days. Hasn't it made your heart sick and cry as you've seen mothers and fathers pleading for the shooting, the killing to stop? Murder. The Bible says do not kill. Do not kill. And yet we find it in our capital city and in some of the suburbs as well. Yes, he resorted to murder, killing every newborn male baby. But then we're introduced to a unique couple of ladies. Their names are given here. Aren't they wonderful? Hebrew midwives helped women give birth and cared for the baby until its mother was stronger. But... 
Pharaoh asked the right people to do the wrong thing. Did you hear that? Pharaoh asked the right people to do the wrong thing. These women, Shipra and Pura, showed great courage and love for God. And because of their love for God, they became courageous. Because it wasn't them, it was God working in them and through them. And they risked their lives in disobeying Pharaoh's command. The Bible says they feared God. That doesn't mean they were afraid of God. They revered him. They honored him. They extolled him. They loved him. And that's how they became courageous. And by the way, in verse 16, there's mention of the delivery stool or birthing stool. It was simply two stones. And the Hebrew women, while in Egypt, may have borrowed the practice of squatting on two bricks, one for each foot, while giving birth. Now, I've never given birth, so I don't know anything about birthing stones or bricks. But I can see how it would work. And verses 17 to 21, they rebelled against Pharaoh's orders. The midwives spared the lives of the Hebrew babies. Their faith in God gave them the courage to stand up for what they knew was right and against that which was wrong. And in this instance, I believe that disobeying the authority was proper. God does not expect us to obey those in authority when they ask us to to disobey the teaching of his word. It puts us in a real dilemma, doesn't it? With all the moral issues that are facing the Christian church today, Please pray for the Asher Bakery family, will you? We're waiting for the judgment right now. Have you seen that family? Please pray for them. Please pray for them. God does not expect us to obey those in authority when they ask us to disobey the word of God. We must pray for those in authority... Pray for those in authority, as Scripture says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 2. And the Bible is full of examples of those who were willing to sacrifice their very lives in order to obey God and to save lives. Think of Esther and Mordecai in Esther 3 and 4. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel as examples? We will not, we will not. We will not. It's not easy, young people. It's not easy standing up for truth. Someone mentioned today Arthur Vince. Some of you may remember Arthur. Catherine and I took him out for lunch on his 99th birthday. And I said to Arthur, what's the nicest thing about being 99? He said, no peer pressure. I thought that was great. Young people, peer pressure. Peer pressure. It's not easy to stand up when others are lying down. 
It's not easy to stand against the tide when others are going with it. But God says in his word in 1 Samuel 3, those who honor me, them I will honor. And whole nations can be caught up in immorality, but following the majority or the authority is not always right when we're expected to act in disobedience to God's word. It happened in the New Testament to the disciples in Acts 5.29. We must take a stand to obey God rather than man, they said. Peter and the apostles. Verse 20 says, so God was kind to the midwives. Of course he was. They loved him. They loved him. They revered him. They extolled him. He was very kind to them. And God rewarded them in a marvelous way. It says, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And look at verse 21. God rewarded the midwives in a very special God-like way. Do you know, God is no man's debtor. No man's debtor. These women did what they did for love of God, for his name's sake. They were rewarded with children of their own. These midwives would have been barren women, taking care of other women's children. They had none of their own. But God rewarded them by giving them their own children, their own families. And children are a gift from God. Have you ever looked upon yourself as being a gift from God? Eh? A gift from God? Us older folks, gift from God? Yes. Psalm 127 verses 3 to 5 tell us it's wonderful, wonderful psalm. And then a great joy. We read of Sarah in Genesis 21 and Hannah in 1 Samuel, how God blessed them with children. Think of Elizabeth. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And then finally, because time's gone, verse 22, Pharaoh turns to a more diabolical scheme, ordering the midwives to throw all the Hebrew male babies into the river Nile. They were told to kill all the male babies, all the boys. And they said, we can't do that. They're being born so quickly, we just can't handle it. So he says, well, when there's a male child born, just take him and throw him into the river. So in chapter 2, we read of Moses, who became a basket case and was saved as part of God's Sovereign plan. God is still on the throne. And he will remember his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us. He never will leave us alone. Jesus knew what it was to be left alone by God. On that cross at Calvary. Jesus in agony cried out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
your sin and my sin separated the Savior from his Father. And Jesus said, it is finished. And God said, son, you have done what you came to do. And he raised him from the dead. And now Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, making intercession for each one of us. Thank you for listening. Amen.